Today's guest is swimming superstar and sporting legend Michael Klim. In 1995, at the age of 18, Michael Klim was named Australian Swimming Rookie of the Year. He won a bronze medal in his first Olympic appearance in the 1996 Atlanta Games, setting the stage for his meteoric rise, and he began breaking world records the following year. At the 2000 Sydney Olympic Games, Klim won two gold and two silver medals. After retiring in 2007, Klim returned to swimming in 2011 with the hope of reaching the 2012 London Olympics, and he reached the semi-finals in both the 100-metre freestyle and 100-metre butterfly at the Australian Championships before again announcing his retirement. In 2020, Klim was inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame. This massive high was met with a massive low, as 2020 was also the year that Michael was diagnosed with a rare neurological disorder that turned his world upside down. It's called chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, or also known as CIDP. Beyond the pool, Michael is a dedicated philanthropist, entrepreneur, speaker, soon-to-be author, and a proud father of three, who prioritises a robust work-life balance across his family and entrepreneurial pursuits. And in today's motivating and insightful episode, we talk about life after sport, the importance of mindset and balance, and why he won't let CIDP break his spirit. Hello and welcome. My name is Steph Prem and I'm your host of Mindful Mess, a podcast where we speak with some of Australia's favourite sporting, health and business personalities about how they find balance in today's world. Mindful Mess is proudly sponsored by Medibank. You're only human and what an incredible human you are. Hello, wonderful human. Thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to Mindful Mess. Thank you, Steph. I know it's a long time coming. I've been made it very easy for you to get hold of me of late. We finally made it happen. So it's great to be here. We're here, and that's the most important thing. You have had a little bit going on. That's okay. (laughs) Dive into all of that today. And I think, as we were talking just before we jumped on, there's a few messy moments that we Mm. can talk about and we can share. But I thought maybe we'll start by sharing with everyone how we met. It's a bit of a hilarious. Actually, it's very mortifying for me, but probably hilarious <laughs> for you. Story. I couldn't say how long ago it was, but we were both injured at the time. I was training for 2012 games from memory, I think. And I yeah. just come off yeah. an injury off the back of the 2010 games. So that gives us our yeah. timeline. 2011, yeah. maybe. <laughs> and we we're both at the Institute of Sport and yeah. do it in the rehab section, trying to get our bodies ready to perform again. <laughs> and I was coming off this obviously horrific back injury and I'd been Mm. doing a lot of water training to obviously for weightlessness and to try and learn to get everything working again without my injury and back playing up. And I'd been for months swimming with one of those, what are they called? The little bands you put around your waist? Like a weight band kind of thing, like a flotation one? A flotation one. Yeah, Yeah, no weights, (laughs) just flotation to try and get me up and back down the pool. And it was going to be the magical day that I was turning up to finally take the belt off and swim for the first time. It's all actually coming back to me a little bit clearer now. I turn up (laughs) and there's Klimi with Channel 7 and an entire TV (laughs) suite people filming him in the pool getting ready for the games. And it's just him and it's just me in another lane. And I said to my coach, there is no way I'm getting in the pool today. Like, (laughs) I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. 
And he was like, come on, mate, take the belt off. It's our day. You've been waiting for this day for a really long time. It's a great day and you'll be swimming freely without your belt. Anyway, he forced me to get in the pool. I am so slow. You are just up back, up back past me. And then finally my time came to get out of the water. I was so mortified and I was like, please don't be on camera in the background of drowning in the background of your, your special. And then I get in the hot tub to do our little recovery afterwards and you jump in the hot tub. At this point, and yeah, you sit yeah. down next to me in my head. I was like, Oh, I'm so embarrassed. And you just turned to me, gave me a high five, and go, I think you nearly got me on that last lap. <laughs> and I, oh, from that moment forward, I was like, We're going to get along, my friend. <laughs> Look, if you got me on the mountain, I'd understand the feeling. So that was, yeah, my comeback for London. And I didn't make the team, but you know, genuinely for me, seeing people in the water and maybe if it's for you skiing and, you know, like obviously your second nature. So whereas, you know, I'd probably swim better than I walk, definitely nowadays. So, <laughs> and then when people give it a genuine go, it, I um, full credit to you. And the fact, I didn't realize you were so apprehensive about it at the time. Now that I hear it, I'm glad that you got through the process and you swam without the belt. I did, without the belt, and I got your high five at the end. It meant, honestly, it meant a lot, and we've had a lot of laughs since, so I'm I'm very (laughs) grateful. But I will stick to frozen water sports. I know that now, so (laughs) I'll leave you to the water sports. It's much quicker. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Speaking of, of your success in the water, I mean, you've achieved something that only a small handful of people have really achieved in their their lifetime or really their career, and that's two gold medals at the Olympics, not to mention five Commonwealth Games gold medals. You're a six-time world champion. You've broken a total of 21 world records in your career. And then, of course, there's that memorable Sydney Olympics 4 by 100 freestyle relay that I think lives on in the minds of many Australians as one of the greatest displays of athleticism in, in sporting history. But let's start with the gold medal. How did that feel? What does that feel like? It's very hard to put into words. You know, as an athlete at first hand, how how much we devote towards the pursuit of just something so so simple or something so, I guess, specific in a way, you know, like swimming for 100 metres or even butterflies. It's, it's such a small percentage of people in the world actually do it. And, you know, I devoted my entire life pretty much to the pursuit of swimming and seeing how fast I could go. So having the opportunity to race in front of, our home crowd in front of family and friends, and then the eyes of the world, the swimming community, and it just kept on getting bigger and bigger. So I think with that relay, there was probably an element of shock as well of just fear, adulation and euphoria because we were, it's not like we didn't go into that event as favourites. We had a huge challenge that we had to face, but to actually stand up and deliver on on what you've been working towards. That's so kind of probably in sport, that's the most satisfying emotion, you know, like when you work towards something and then the, the planet becomes off because probably nine out of 10 times it doesn't always, as you know. <laughs> so, yeah. And then that was my first night of the Olympic experience. It was just oh, wow. phenomenal looking up and, and seeing 32,000 people just jumping up and down and that whole kind of swimming stadium was just vibrating and it was just the sound was just echoing through our bodies and I mean it was it had all the drama and at no point I think that evening I mean except for the race maybe itself I felt 
in my own body. It kind of felt like it was an out-of-body experience to a degree. Wow. Kind of like the, <laughs> almost like the flow state. Like you're not even aware. You're just in the zone, really. Yeah. I mean, definitely the swim. I always talk about, people talk to me about that word record lead-off. And it was the most clear-headed I've ever been. I guess I had a very sort of simple mindset. And even though we had quite a bit of drama, Thorpe was running late and you know, we had the best team in the world ever next to us. And, you know, I was able to execute to this day. It's the fastest I've ever slumped. I've never beat that time from Sydney's. I think from a physical and mental standpoint, I was able to be at my peak at the same time. For me, it happened more regularly swimming for Australia than swimming for myself. So a lot of my best times and best achievements happened when I was in a team environment swimming for Australia. And so that's kind of, you know, I'm pretty kind of proud to find something extra when, you know, when that relay team was on the blocks. Find those extra one percenters when you need them. <laughs> and would you say that win was your highlight from all the achievements, all the podiums, the world records? Was that the career highlight? I think because of the notoriety that it received and we still, you know, 20 odd years on, we're still talking about it. I think as a moment... Definitely. But I think as a from an individual standpoint, I had probably the best week of my career when I was just nine, well, it was 20. It was a world championship in Perth. I was able to win seven medals, four gold at the world championships at the age of 20. And I never, never surpassed that as an individual performance. And it's good and bad, I guess, reaching those heights at such an early age. And I was always trying to get back to that kind of standard and an individual performance, which was really, really difficult. Yeah. So I compared, I have those two kind of memories, the week in Perth at the World Champs and that lead off, and then obviously the relay in Sydney. And do you think that's what drove you to continue in your career? That was that feeling that you kept chasing? I always knew that I was always on this mission of, trying to see how fast I could keep pushing my body. And even though, you know, Sydney was bittersweet in the sense that I, I broke world records early on in the meet and I got individual silver and but it wasn't still felt that I could go faster. So and then, you know, I was able to prove even four years later that I was still adding and value and contributing to the team. And so by the end it was more than just trying to better my best it was kind of more of a team environment and the Aussie swim team through that era was era was just phenomenal you know the likes of Thorpey and Hackey and Susie and Liesl Jones and Lindy Tricketts and Patria Thomas so that kind of and in 2000-2004 period was just kind of the golden era and I was just sort of you know I hit my traps in 98 and onward yeah it was a pretty special time to be part of the team. I can imagine we had Liesl on earlier this season and she said something very similar, that they were the, mm. the golden years and to be part of it back then, you, she's never been able to match that that kind of energy. It's very special. Yeah, yeah it's an interesting. Um, people always compare or even current teams to that one. And, you know, it's great to see that the current swim team surpassed our medal tally from the World Championships 20-odd years ago. Now they're the most successful team that we've ever had but they look at why were we successful I think it's you had so many great individuals and they kind of they worked together really well so there was no issues with egos there was no issues with people doing things their own way kind of people follow the certain code and ethics and 
and you can have you know really high achievers within a group it's more you know in any organization that doesn't mean you have to have a hierarchical setup but skippy or thorpey doing these things well i can do it too you know it's sort of like you know and then there was a certain standard that was set by a lot of people like those i think work ethic and professionalism Mm. they they were unquestionable so like it's those sort of things where i mean no one ever questioned anyone for their commitment or the dedication etc because that was just yeah that was if you're on that team you're on 110 percent. that's incredible an amazing experience and culture an environment to be mm. part of. No wonder you all just kept thriving. Yeah. I asked Liesl the same question. I'm going to ask you now. Do you have any pregame rituals that you used to do? I was borderline OCD, I think, when it got to my races. Mm. And I was fortunate enough, I was aligned with Speedo. And I'd wear a new suit. And I could pretty much design the suits the way I liked them, the cutout. And we were wearing the kind of full body coverage suits, the fast in suits back in the day. and. You know, for me, a bit of a omen was to obviously tear off the, the tag off a off a brand new suit for every every race. But if I look at, I've been, I'm actually writing a book as we speak. So look out for it. It'll be <laughs> I announced my uh, the memoirs will be coming out next year. But I'll be I was looking at some of the, my old pre race kind of rituals, and you know, I had this kind of ritual of always wetting my mouth before I was getting up on the blocks, and these kind of little ticks that I had with adjusting the goggles and I think I had definitely you know and I would sort of rub the block to very similar to you look at Rafael Nadal how he kind of lines up his drink bottles and I had a definitely had a routine and the routine was something that gave me familiarity and but if it didn't happen it didn't completely throw me off but I did have certain ways I'd like to get things done for sure. I think we've all seen a little bit of that OCD in the the recent Beckham documentary, whereas he's carried a lot of that over into his life now as well. I think it's very (laughs) common in athletes, as you mentioned, Nadal. Everyone's got a little something that just, I mean, I think it just makes you feel more in control on the day, if anything. You know, it could be a two-edged sword because it's, you know, on competition day, so many times things don't always turn out and the way you want them to, there is either a delay or there is there's things that's out of your control and you have to be flexible enough to adjust that and not get derailed by any of those sort of things. So you have to be flexible enough. To manage it when it doesn't go the right way. Yeah. I think the expectation and, and the pressure that you would have had to have managed being an elite athlete is unsustainable. So can you tell us some of the pressures and the struggles that you had to deal with whilst managing your long-standing career? Yeah, very timely that we are having this chat because it's very fresh in my mind. And the pressures that I had in sport kind of feel minuscule compared to the pressures after sport. You know, like I think the pressures in sport were pressures that I used to put up on myself and the expectations that I had of my performance and my ability. And, you know, I had so many people working with me and for me and trying to achieve one thing, just to swim fast. It's a very simple existence, actually, to be honest. But I think the, the pressures in life after sport, you know, with so many different variables, for me, became, not, I wouldn't say necessarily harder to manage, but I think it took a lot more a mind shift or a mindset to manage that. And yeah, look, the one way I overcame expectation is that I, I worked bloody hard. 
you know, I was probably, I tried to be the hardest worker on the blocks and that gave me mental toughness knowing that, you know, there's most likely none of the guys on the blocks had worked as hard as I have to get there. So, and I think that's, I had that tendency to overthink and overanalyze and yeah, so I tried to basically, once I even got to the meet, it was almost, I tried not to think about the actual race itself because the preparation, as you know, it's complete. You can't do anything about it. And for me, being able to race under any circumstance was was what sort of gave me a lot of confidence. And then I could also manage any expectation if it was whatever it may be. Yeah, so I, I think my hard work was a way of managing that that expectation. I had a coach that once said to me, as you say, on the blocks or for me in the start gate, is you don't want to be there questioning whether you've done enough work. Mm. You want to get to yeah. that point, sort of like what you said, and switch off and just know that in that moment, it's up to your ability, whatever happens on the day and your talent essentially and how much work you have put in. So it's like knowing you've done the work is all part of that mindset to be able to then perform mm. under pressure, I think. And you touched on, yeah. you said then lessons and mindset, would you say they are some of the biggest things that you've learned that have transitioned their way into, like you said, now life's challenges? I think a lot of things that I took away from swimming, I'd say from some of those high pressure situations and, you know, realizing that there was a greater team that got me there. So from obviously from a coach to physiologist to nutritionist, the family support, the network. So even when I went into more of a business kind of scenario, I never tried to sort of, even though I I was the leader, I had people at my level that were experts in, say, finance or whatever it might be, or managerial experts, et cetera. So, and everyone contributed equally. And so that team environment and the leadership skills that you acquire as an athlete, and, and I think that's what one of the big qualities in in sport is that this leadership aspect you don't know at what level you could be the best swimmer in your class for example or the best swimmer at your school or best athlete in the state and in a country or whatever it might be or you might be following a leader it has so many different layers and i think i learned how leadership can you know affect yourself but then affect others and how you can influence others so there was a lot of learning curves from sport for sure it's amazing that you can take that learning from being in a team environment into now life. It makes so much sense. What role would you say that mindfulness plays for you then or now? I think for me, mindfulness as an athlete, I think it came naturally. So, And we were probably doing a lot of mindfulness practices without actually knowing that we were doing them. Even swimming for for four hours a day, there was periods in that where we were so engrossed in what we were actually doing. And it's, we have those moments where there's nothing else really matters. So we do have that clarity of mind. And, and even if it's under exhaustion or if it's just doing some easy laps, or I think there was a lot of kind of mindfulness exercises that we just had naturally built into our schedule. Whereas I think in, in life after sport, I think I had to make a conscious decision to implement more of those sort of times into my daily routine. So if it is exercise, if it is for me previously surfing or meditation or ice baths or whatever it might be, it's, you know, you have to somehow create a bit more of a schedule and be more more deliberate about it, really. 
I can tell that whenever it, it took a back seat and I didn't focus as much on on my mindfulness sort of practices, and I could definitely notice that you know sometimes the pressure cooker would just start overheating again. It's a good example, the pressure cooker, exactly. <laughs> Body and mind have a way of telling us when we're uh, mm. we're at our limit sometimes. Yeah, I think there's also this huge assumption with athletes that we're naturally motivated. What role do you think motivation plays in your life or doesn't play? I don't know if you agree with my answer or not, but I felt like I had an intrinsic motivation from a very early age. And I don't know if that's because of my upbringing and, you know, my parents traveled around the world so much when I was a kid and swimming for me was something that I had familiarity with and I something I continued through all sort of all the travels and all the changes in my life. And it was a constant it was, for you. Yeah, yeah, it was a massive constant. And it's or something that gave me that, oh, from a very early age, it gave me some confidence. And also I fitted well into those environments. I don't know. I, I guess as a kid, you want recognition and, and acknowledgement. So as much as we don't want to admit it, but I always have people ask, what motivated you? And I said, I don't really know. It, you know, <laughs> so... But I sort of had this really all or nothing kind of attitude from a very early age. And I kind of continued that with business. It was, I go 100 miles an hour. And it was actually finding more of a, a better balance, sustainable kind of balance to my lifestyle recently, especially that I had to sort of realize that doing an extra half an hour of physical training is not going to serve me better or I would compromise my rest you know, recently or even in, in the days of work, business. So so I think the motivation was never an issue as an athlete. I think I've found issues with motivation going through my health battles and just probably, yeah, recently I'm trying to align <laughs> where, where my motivation sits. You used a, a brilliant word there, being balanced. Do you think it is really possible? I mean, often it can feel out of reach, right? It's a constant I wouldn't say mission, but to constantly striving to, well, I always use the, the dimensions of wellness and it's a wheel. So you from, say, your social wellness to physical to emotional to spiritual, et cetera, and you're trying to be as balanced in that wheel of wellness. So, you know, and at times all of those, you know, a little bit higher than others. So um, I think it's, it's achievable, but it's, I think it requires constant work. And, you know, there are times where we're more stressed, we have more on, we compromise things and replace things. So, yeah, but I think there are certain periods where you definitely feel as balanced as you can possibly be. And for me personally right now, I'm even with everything that I've been through in the last few years, I kind of, even with my, a lot of my physicality, physical abilities taken away, I feel more balanced now than I probably did 10 years ago, which is interesting because initially three years ago if i asked myself that same question this big physical wellness component was taken away and i thought that's going to be the end of my sort of identity my well-being etc but you know it required a lot of work for me on a spiritual emotional level to rebalance that wheel of wellness and it is definitely achievable but it constantly requires work I have to be able to relate somehow because I think you and I are both people that go at 110% sometimes. <laughs> yeah. To give a beautiful example, you used to come 
you and I did some corporate wellness events together back in the day. We'd run a, a spin class for <laughs> a group of people and for one of your companies, Milk, at the time. And then yeah. after the class, I'd be packing up the room going, oh, that was a lot of fun. And you go, oh, I'm going to do a real spin class now. And you'd go <laughs> jump back on the bike and do another class. So it's interesting that you say you're now finding that. And I've had to find it the hard way too. But for me, something that I don't know the phrase exactly, but it's something along the lines of we don't always feel like particularly balanced, but knowing what balance does feel like is what helps us when, like you said, the pressure cooker moments mm, come up for mm. us and knowing that we can always return to it. Yeah. And look, it's interesting because I, you know, throughout my uh, life, I guess, you know, through sport and business, you know, I've been in high pressure situations making, you know, important decisions. And, but it's at those times where we're making those decisions or you get certain news that generally say you're going to try it or whatever. And, and I've been able to monitor that my reaction to a lot of these, you know, these moments and, and I don't think I've ever felt the way I feel right now, even though I'm going through probably life-changing kind of sometimes decisions in terms of treatment or whatever it might be. And previously, I was very, very probably clean-minded in terms of what I do, but it maybe wouldn't have put as much thought and time into processing certain things, more impulsive. And, and whereas now I think I've found myself taking more time and reflecting and so I not to say that previously wasn't the right way but it's certainly you know if I look at it now it probably didn't serve me so well from a health point I mean my partner said I was talking about a certain period of my life you know I was building a house running a business training for the Olympics had two kids and doing all sort of other stuff and I said I, I just don't know how why I did it and she's like because you could, at the time, you could manage most of these things. And like, I couldn't even contemplate managing one of those things right now. <laughs> so I think we all have, you know, our life is sort of, it's kind of, uh, yeah, it changes. Ebbs and flows. Yeah. You've slightly touched on it, but let's take it back to 2020. The last time you and I caught up, you were just about to be inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame. So firstly, congratulations. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Unbelievable. How did it feel to be recognized as one of the world's best athletes and performers? <laughs> oh, it was, a, it was a really weird emotion because it, I was going through a lot of mixed emotions at the time already. And, you know, to go actually into the flight to Florida and be in a room with a lot of my childhood kind of idols that you know, from Greg Leganis to Matt Biondi and Rowdy Gaines and John Sieben, who was one of our Aussie inductees that year as well. Very, very surreal. And my parents attended, Michelle flew over as well. So it was, uh, yeah, it's kind of like it was a kind of like an end of a chapter kind of moment. But, you know, I wanted to make sure there was a few issues with that event because of COVID and they kept on inviting me back. And I was like, you know, each year things were sort of, getting in the way of me getting there but I sort of made sure that I was going to attend last year and experience it with my loved ones and I don't know if, how I sort of it's quite interesting because I haven't been inducted into the Aussie Hall of Fame yet so I've, I've skipped all those and I've just gone to the International Hall of Fame instead. Straight to the top <laughs> Clemmy I would expect nothing yeah. less of you I love it <laughs> I mean it must have given you a great sense of you know, closure and able to reflect on your career. And there just must have been so many magical moments in that, really. Yeah. 
It was a pretty interesting year because my coach of over eight years, Gennady Turetsky, he'd passed away earlier that year as well. And then I got inducted into the Hall of Fame. And it was certainly, it would, we just passed the 20-year sort of anniversary of the Sydney Games. And there was a lot of sort of these monumentous kind of moments that were happening. And yeah, as you said, it was definitely an end of a certain chapter. And you know, it's as much as it's still such a big part of me. And like, obviously, all my learnings and I guess the person that I am today and even my my character traits have been shaped by the sport. And as much as we probably want to change sometimes, we can't because it's so, it's so ingrained in us. So it was certainly a, a very kind of fulfilling moment. Which is beautiful because 2020 was also a very challenging year for you. So mm. I think mm. possibly the highest of highs and the lowest mm. of lows. So your coach had passed. You've had this enormous career high. You've just been inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame. And then you found out or you've just been diagnosed with this rare neurological disorder. So excuse mm. me if I, um, hopefully I pronounce this correctly, but it's a chronic inflammatory demyelating polyneuropathy. Is that correct? Perfect. Right. Yeah. Very good. A little easier. Yeah. CIDP. CIDP. Yeah. Much easier. Could you tell us a little bit about CIDP and how you discovered it and that journey? Yeah. As the kind of name suggests, it's where the myelin sheets kind of uh, they fray away from your nerves. So, and when the sheets of the nerves aren't sort of very, even the messaging is not sent through correctly to your in your nerves. So for me, it happens with CIDP, it's generally your extremities, so your hands or your feet. In my case, it's affected my feet and it kind of generally works its way up. So the way it sort of us, you know, I found out that I had it, it was over probably a couple of years prior to 2020, a really bad ankle that I broke probably 15 years prior and I my back started playing up again, so I had another prolapse disc, and you know, so I um I was nursing injuries. You know, I never really sort of took care of myself properly. I, I was just sort of pushing through it and just masking pain with painkillers and anti-inflammatories and things like that, rather than addressing it. So my my ankle, well, and I've started getting some neural kind of symptoms in my quads, a bit of tingling, and almost mm. like someone is pouring hot water down your legs, and it sort of started feeling a little bit strange, a little bit of numbness in my feet, but they would come and go. And then my doctor, Gary Zimmerman, who was the doctor at, in Victoria, was, you know, looking after me for many years, you know, even when I was swimming. And we started going down the neurological route because we thought initially might have just been the back problem that needed addressing. But because it was bilateral, you know, there was more to it. And they started having nerve conduction studies and nerve biopsies, muscle biopsies. And but there was, we couldn't really find anything initially. I managed to got my ankle sorted just to eliminate that because I was con- constantly living in pain. And same with my back. I, I addressed the back issue just to eliminate everything, other sort of contributing factors. And I was going downhill really quickly at that point. So within probably the start of 2020 to late 2020, I kind of lost, lost the ability to walk really. So, you know, I was had to walk with, a walking stick or crutches and so it was a tricky period and it affected me mentally greatly i was we i was living in a like a two-story place and you know i wasn't really looking forward to getting out of bed and i'd stay up in my bedroom most of the days and it was tricky if you having obviously 
kids that need you. And then, you know, I had responsibilities as a dad and it was just a, um, from just these kind of simple symptoms, just the backtracking a little bit again, it sort of just evolved into this full-blown CRDP condition that I think took us all by surprise. But it was kind of sitting there dormant, just giving us little signs for a while. You know, I think the moral of that is if anyone has any neural kind of condition or symptoms, I should say, like numbness, cold feet, a little bit of tingling in any in any part of your body, I definitely suggest getting it looked at ASAP because it's, you know, these these conditions now with IVIG and other treatments can be halted. And in some cases, the sooner we get onto them, the we can reverse them. So yeah, it was a uh, 2020 was was a tough year because obviously travel restrictions came into place and I was trying to sort of fly back and forth, trying to get my treatment. I had a couple of back operations to sort that out as well. And it was challenging year, to okay. say the least. <laughs> to say the least, such a challenging time, not just physically, but as you touched on mentally. And is CIDP curable? No, at the moment, there's no, no cure as such. So a lot of the the main, I guess, we, we've seen with a lot of sufferers is a lot of lifestyle changes can have a really positive kind of impact on the symptoms. So, but also IVIG, which is a plasma-derived medication, you know, has a lot of great antibodies and helps to kind of reduce inflammation, a little bit of nerve regeneration, but there is no cure as such at the moment. So ultimately, uh, you know, we're launching the Clint Foundation next year as well, which one of our blue sky kind of goals is to start some research. And I mean, there is research out there already, but really sort of ramp it up and, and trying to sort of ultimately find some sort of a cure for CRDP and, and GBS and, and sort of conditions like that similar to mine. That's amazing. Brilliant. That's next year, you said? <laughs> it's actually all ready to go, but we've, you know, obviously I've sort of put my effort behind lifeblood this year and trying to get as many Aussies to donate plasma because there is a massive demand for for plasma donations that sort of surpassed blood donations in Australia at the moment just because of that demand in generating medications out of plasma. So so that's been my focus. And next year we really want to sort of build that community for sufferers and carers that are you know, people that are going through something similar to I have, I've been kind of completely inundated. You know, the day I did my, uh, I came out with with my condition and did my pro the project story with Lisa, it sort of changed my life. And I, you know, I think within a few days, I had thousands of messages, and I felt that people were kind of opening up to me. And if I don't do something with it and don't try and help them, and inadvertently became a spokesperson for these sort of conditions, I wouldn't be doing myself and everyone else justice. So that's, uh, so yeah, I'll probably be calling on you next year to help me spread the message. <laughs> 100%. My hand is up. You know that. I hope you know that. <laughs> it's incredible that you've been able to put your focus there because I you were quoted saying that early on, like you said before, when you started to deteriorate quite quickly and you were trying to really understand it physically, mentally, what you were going mm. through, that you didn't really know what the future looked like. And you said it was mm. quite a pessimistic outlook at the time. And I remember reading that and thinking, gosh, because you're just so innately optimistic and positive. And like yeah. you said, motivated, that's how I've always yeah. known you. So when I read that, yeah. my heart sank. And I just, do you feel that, you know, now having the foundation and having a bit of a mission and purpose behind you, yeah. has that helped you? Oh, absolutely. I sort of got to a 
first stage, I would say early last year to middle of last year, where I was really kind of not doing myself any favors in the sense that my lifestyle probably didn't reflect what I was going through. You know, I I wasn't, I found it hard to get going and do the things that I, you know, this morning I was up on the bike, did my 40 minutes on the spin bike. I've done my meditation and I've done my ice bath, you know, like already I've picked that box already today. Whereas previously I was very sort of stagnant. I wasn't active, you know, mentally, physically. It was, I was a grumpy person and it, and it actually was almost like an intervention from my family because they could see, you know, as you know, you know, I'm generally a fairly optimistic person and try to fit as much into a day, normally too much, time ambitious. But there was, <laughs> I kind of lost a lot of these traits and, and my mindset was just not what it had to be. And I wasn't addressing my emotions about where I was in, in life, I wasn't addressing, you know, the issue, the grieving period, I guess, that I was still going through with the condition. So that's what I was um, about to say. There must have been a huge sort of phase of grief attached to this physical yeah, injury. I think that was the, that messy period. And, you know, like when you talk mm, about the, in, the in line with this podcast, this was a mess for me. And I was in denial about addressing it. I was in denial that I was still had, I had lingering stuff that I wasn't wanting to talk about and I always used to speak to to professionals but I really needed to dive into it a little bit more um seriously and and the support I received from swimming community my friends it was just amazing so yeah I think it and it was bizarre because it was almost like 60 days to the day when I decided okay I'm going to change I'm going to change my ways I'm going to get back into working out I'm going to get back into eating properly and not drinking and this and that. And within, I think, within 60 days, my entire life just changed. Like, it was bizarre. I was, Incredible. Initially, yeah, I was initially so dejected that I wasn't getting kind of work opportunities, things that uh, previously were just, you know, always sort of coming my way, which I, I think I had a good sort of um, attitude about it and, and used to reciprocate. But then things stopped. And But it's amazing that when I made that conscious sort of, shift mentally that everything sort of uh, started coming back in again so it it wasn't easy as you know these kind of some deep diving into some dark places which wasn't uh and yeah i think it, it needed to be done it's never comfortable no <laughs> the mess the, the mess, mess is yeah. never comfortable but i would say it's not pessimistic your outlook at all anymore it's you know you were just learning to deal with the flare-ups and then the calm downs and how you manage your mindset, as you said. But I mean, grief's not, it's not really something you make through. It's not linear. It's non-linear, you know, mm. something mm. that you really just have to learn to live with. And I'm sure yeah. that was all, all part of it for you. And, and yeah. like you said, and doing what you can to better manage yourself under load and under stress and overwhelm. And like yeah. you're able to do that within a couple of months. That's, that's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. For me, it's, it's definitely constant. It's a daily kind of I wouldn't say it's a battle, but it's a daily kind of now my mission. Mm. So like I was on a mission to achieve a certain goal in, in the pool. I've got I'm very fortunate that I've got physio, my a dear friend of mine, Hamish, who lives to Hamish Dickey, who lives here. He used to be actually a physio for a lot of the skiers in, the, in New Zealand, actually. So he's been telling me a lot of the stories, but uh, it's got some great 
inside and he's keeping me really accountable we do you know physical testing you know every three months and we can track where i'm going and it's given me that kind of that sort of one from a physical point of view that a little bit of goals to strive towards and then yes from my emotional wellness and other sort of just lifestyle in general i've been able to just continually keep checking in and making sure that I'm giving myself to the right areas in the right sort of quantities and I prioritize things better. I'm more clear-headed, you know, and I feel that I'm, I've accepted with my condition and what I can, my output and it's going to have to do for now. And I'm, you know, I'm obviously striving to improve my ability and my output, but it's sort of, if it doesn't improve, then I'm, I'm comfortable with that too. You know, you've done the inputs. To improve the yeah. output. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> back, right. Back to that conversation on the block. <laughs> and we've touched on it before, you and I, in the past, because it's something I think you and I are both big believers in, which is non negotiables, sort of mm. like the cornerstone habits and principles that underpin the, a life of health or success or fulfillment, whatever you, however you look at it. But what would some of your non negotiables in Klimi's life now? Look, for me now, and it's interesting, it's still movement. Because it's a movement of any of any sort. Because as soon as if I am stagnant, if I'm not active, one, you know, my muscles aren't stimulated, the nerves aren't firing. I can't overdo it, but then I, I can't be still for too long either. So, and it then, you know, my time in the pool is my mindfulness practice. I don't swim very hard, but I, I just love being in the water. And, and I found ways of, being on the ocean or in the ocean or in the pool. So my non-negotiables will definitely be movement. And and I still monitor my body depending on that some days I'm just wiped and and that's when recovery takes precedence. But you know, I feel clear headed this morning chatting to you because I've done my movement, you know, and I wouldn't yeah. and generally previously if I used to go to meetings or work not having done that, you know, I'd found my whole day would be racy. I'd be always trying to chase my tail, et cetera. But it mm. puts me in a good sort of state for the day. I love that. Mm-hmm. So philanthropy, you're an entrepreneur, athlete, Olympian. You spoke about being a dad. You're soon to be author. You're launching the foundation. <laughs> There's a lot of positives. There's still a lot of yeah, wonderful yeah. things. And I'm <laughs> sure writing this book has been very cathartic for you in many ways. Yeah. And hopefully you've been able to reflect on just some of the amazing achievements throughout your life and your career. But what would you say, what is your greatest life achievement, be it personally or, or professionally? It's hard to to put it down to one, you know, because I think in, I mean, obviously my kids are, and I don't like using the word legacy, but my future, in bits of me, they'll be walking around for a while after I'm gone. But um. I've been able to touch people in different ways throughout my life, you know, obviously through sport in a certain way, you know, business maybe, and and recently even more so through health. So I think there's hopefully, I don't know, it's a really tough question, Steph, because I don't, it's not just necessarily about achieving something. I think it's about this process of continually developing and evolving. And I think the moment I stopped wanting to achieve and evolve, that's when things went went wrong so i think it's the physical achievements are one you know but i think uh, you know the way i've been able to be seen and or the way people have sort of communicated to me how i'm able to 
motivate them to donate plasma or give them a new lease on life with their condition or whatever it might be. So I think for me, those sort of things speak a lot of volumes at the moment. It speaks many volumes. And I'm one of those people that you have touched along your amazing career. And I'm so grateful for that. And I'm grateful for your time also. And I I value it very much. But before we go, I hope you don't mind, (laughs) before we finish every episode, (laughs) and you are our, our season finale guest. Oh, wow. Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) If we were to take a a beat right now, if we were to take a a forced pause or a forced moment of mindfulness, if you will, Mm -hmm. we focus our attention and our awareness on what we're sensing and and feeling in this moment, would you be able to share with me yours? Yeah, at the moment I'm feeling calmness, satisfaction, and hope. That's amazing. (laughs) What a way to finish. It's beautiful. Thank you. It's always an absolute joy spending time with you. I just want to remind you of the magic that you are, and you are forever evolving and inspiring us all. Thank you for your honesty today, your humility, your humor, of course, that you always bring. (laughs) And thanks for joining us on Mindful Mess. Thank you. Thank you, Steph. Loved it. And I hope, uh, I don't know, gave you some insight into hopefully making your lives better somehow. (laughs) Always. You do that magically. Thank you for being here. No worries. Thanks so much for joining me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Mindful Mess. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and share from your favourite podcast platform. Mindful Mess is proudly sponsored by Medibank. You're only human and what an incredible human you are.